Hi, I'm Paul Fagan, the McCain Institute Senior Director for Human Rights and Democracy Programs, and you're in the arena with leaders and citizens who are taking character-based actions. In the Arena is a proud member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. For more information, visit democracygroup.org. Hi, I'm Ernie Allen. Each year at the Sedona Forum, one of my favorite moments is the human trafficking panel. I know that sounds odd, but I find it inspiring. It is when we hear from the leading experts, from national and international policymakers, from pioneers in the field. It's when we learn about our progress in the fight against human trafficking and modern slavery and how we are finally reducing the numbers. Conservatively, at least 25 million human beings trafficked each year for sex or labor. And how we are finally putting an end to this insidious, illicit $150 billion plus industry. Each year, I also look forward to learning more about the visionary, courageous leadership of Cindy McCain and her team at the McCain Institute who worked tirelessly to confront this modern scourge. Each year we celebrate the progress and look forward to the day in which we will no longer need to convene this panel at the Sedona Forum. But after 2020, it's clear we're not there yet. First, we had to grapple with the unanticipated consequences of a pandemic. For example, because of COVID-19, millions more children went online and thus became more vulnerable to the grooming and manipulation of the world's exploiters and traffickers. The traffickers migrated from the streets to the internet where there was far less risk and boundless opportunities to target the vulnerable. To its credit, the technology industry responded even creating new anti-grooming technologies to better identify and intervene in these situations. But even those tools are now under attack for compromising the privacy of the users. But 2020 also forced us to contend with another and unprecedented challenge. We witnessed an explosion of wild conspiracy theories and blatant disinformation about human trafficking with a goal of sowing fear and division. The McCain Institute responded. It joined with leading anti-trafficking organizations in a powerful letter to policymakers and others condemning the disinformation and calling for policies that better address the needs and vulnerability of potential victims, provide more support for survivors, fix the child welfare system, promote victim-centered investigations, produce better data, require greater accountability for businesses and corporations, and truly make human trafficking and modern slavery a central plank of our domestic and foreign policy agendas. What we witnessed in 2020 was a disastrous and unprecedented rise of disinformation and distortion a situation from which the entire anti-trafficking field has paid and is paying a severe price. This disinformation continues to present a dire threat to the extraordinary work of the McCain Institute in its long battle to end human trafficking, to rescue victims, 
and to create a whole new generation of survivors. And it also continues to pose a threat to hundreds of other organizations in the United States and around the world. It cannot be allowed to persist. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for joining us for my favorite panel. And thank you for your genuine commitment to this work, to the McCain Institute, and for your long advocacy and support. Hi, I'm Kristen Abrams. I'm the Senior Director of the Combating Human Trafficking Program at the McCain Institute. And I'm delighted that you've joined us today for this conversation. I, I first need to thank Ernie Allen for that wonderful introduction and for helping to frame this really important issue for us. As many of you all know, disinformation and misinformation is not new. Wild conspiracies go way back, but 2020 really saw an explosion of the popularity and the reach of these delusional theories and really blatant disinformation about a range of issues. One of these theories in particular, QAnon and the impact it has had and is having on our democracy, on our national security, and on legitimate anti-trafficking efforts in this country is the topic of today's conversation. I'd like to welcome our very distinguished panel. I'll do quick introductions and then we'll get right into the conversation. First, I'd like to introduce you to Congressman Tom Malinowski. He is a longtime human rights advocate, having served as the head of Human Rights Watch and as the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. A great friend of the McCain Institute, Congressman, thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'd like to also introduce Ali Soufan. Ali is the chairman and chief executive officer of the Soufan Group. After serving for many years in government and in leadership positions at the FBI, Ali now helps organizations and businesses understand complex international and domestic threats, including those posed by groups like QAnon. Thank you for being here. And last but not least, I would like to introduce my friend, Catherine Chen. Catherine is the CEO of Polaris. Catherine has worked for uh, many decades building programs that apply a social justice lens to efforts to combat both labor and sex trafficking in the US and around the world. Catherine is a strategic thinker and I am so glad that you are now at the helm of Polaris as those of us in the anti-human trafficking community are really taking stock this year, looking at where we've been over the last 20 years and where we're headed. So Catherine, thank you. I'm gonna dive right into the questions with one for you. As you heard me and we heard Ernie mention, disinformation and the role that it's played in global and domestic affairs is not a new phenomenon, but it, it certainly reached new heights in 2020. In preparation for this conversation, I was doing a little bit of research and I came across a poll from December that really startled me and even surprised me having, having followed this for a while that one in three Americans believed that some of the key tenants of the QAnon extremist ideology are true. 
For those of us in the anti-human trafficking community, that became very real last year. I think the devastating impact that QAnon played was something we were contending with every single day. But I'm hoping you can provide a little bit of context for us. What is QAnon? And then how did it intersect with um, the work that we do in the anti-human trafficking community in 2020 and today? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's great to be here with you as well as with Congressman Malinowski and with Ali. Um, you know, so let me let me just set the stage for a minute here. Polaris is a national anti-trafficking organization. We work to combat sex and labor trafficking and restore freedom to survivors. We also, for the last 14 years, have operated the U.S. National Human Trafficking Hotline. And to date, we've responded to 76,000 instances of sex and labor trafficking. We've directly assisted 29,000 victims and survivors get help, get out, um, and get the services that they need. And so we sit on the country's largest data set on human trafficking. And we really take a very data-driven and technology-enabled and survivor-centered approach to our work. And it's really with that lens that I'm talking today about what happened over the course of the summer in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. So going back to July of last year, which feels like an eternity ago, but really only just a couple of months ago, um, the pandemic shutdown had happened, uh, mask mandates were coming into effect. There was you know, late, uh, rampant unemployment um, and we were headed for a presidential election in 2020. And on the National Human Trafficking Hotline, all of a sudden in July, we started to get hundreds of calls. Um, every day we were getting calls and they were people in the, in the public who were um, adamantly sure that corporations were participating in a global human trafficking effort. And what we learned was that over time, these conspiracies, these ideas were really being driven by QAnon. And for those folks who don't have as much familiarity with QAnon, um, to give you the two second quick overview of it, um, QAnon is a uh, disparate group of individuals who are conspiracy minded um, and they have a central tenant and, and they believe that um, there is a global child trafficking ring um, that is driven by uh, Democrats and Hollywood elites and that the only person who can stop this global uh, child trafficking ring is Donald Trump. And so by its nature, uh, QAnon sits at the nexus of uh, human trafficking misinformation. It sits at the nexus of uh, questions about our, our um, elections, our democracy. And what we learned over the course of the summer and into January was that QAnon also had a, a very significant role to play in um, advancing violent extremism in the United States. And, um, you know, I want to say one other thing about the experience that we had on the hotline. Um, what we experienced was uh, hundreds of people calling. Um, we also received hundreds of calls and reports from the public as they were learning about Save the Children uh, groups all over the country. And so it was a, it was two threats at once, um, all as, as we understand it to be driven by a QAnon conspiracies. But um, what we learned was that um, groups were manifesting from online conspiracies and ideas about human trafficking to offline, to physical gatherings in which the rallying cry was to save the children. And there were, there were marches all over the country um, and we were hearing from peer organizations um, like the McCain Institute and others 
that people's social, that organizations social media um, accounts were being taken over by, you know, we would we would put out information that was factual about human trafficking and get back um, really, really um, passionate responses from people who believed that uh, there was a larger fight to be fought. Um, the, the main thing that I do want to underscore in all of this is that the fallout from this disinformation about human trafficking has had real impact on victims and survivors. We went back and counted the number of hours that our staff spent fielding calls just about the Wayfair conspiracy. And there were, there were numerous conspiracies over the course of the summer leading up to the election. Um, what we figured out was the number of hours that we had spent just fielding nonsense calls about, um, about a furniture company online potentially trafficking children could have assisted an additional 42 victims and survivors. And when you hold that in context that in 2019, there were only 600 federal prosecutions of human trafficking, 42 is an enormous number. The last thing that I just wanna to add to this is, you know, the, and I'm sure that Ali will also speak about this quite a bit, but we've definitely seen that human trafficking serves as a gateway narrative for radicalization. And you can look at the two women who lost their lives on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt and Rosanna Boyland. Both of these women were QAnon adherents both of these women were uh, recruited and radicalized using trafficking misinformation. Both of these women then showed up on January 6th at the attack on the US Capitol and they lost their lives. So this is not a fringe issue and this is not a nuisance issue. This is not an annoyance that sort of happens on, on social media. Um, we really see QAnon as, as this triple threat. It threatens the trafficking movement, it threatens our democracy and it, and it heads us toward um, a radicalization of for violent extremists. Yeah, and Catherine, thanks for just bringing that data perspective to it. I think so many of us have said it's harming legitimate anti-trafficking efforts. The fact that you could quantify that in terms of serving victims and survivors is, is really important. And, and thank you for helping set up my next question. Congressman, I, I wanna come over to you, Catherine. You mentioned the link to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And so Congressman, I wanna get your perspective as a, a legislator. What role do you believe that QAnon and, and the, the, the theories followers had on that day and those events? But in addition to that, you have the perspective of somebody who has confronted QAnon as an individual. You were on the receiving end of um, QAnon-generated death threats. And so if you can share with us both the perspective as a legislator and what role that you believe QAnon may have had to the extent you can share on the six, but then also the, the bit of a human element in terms of what you you and your family faced. Thank you so much. And, and yeah, I, I, I did experience a little bit of that last, last year and, and this was because of the confluence of two events. Uh, the first was that I uh, was leading in the House a resolution, a very simple resolution condemning QAnon and the spread of conspiracy theories in, in our country. And it was something I worked really hard to, to make bipartisan. I had an equal number of Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. The goal was to show that um, the House, the Congress would be united across party lines in condemning uh, this nonsense. So I was working on that. And at the same time, 
I was involved in a very heated congressional campaign in my district in New Jersey. And one of the national Republican uh, campaign organizations, the NRCC, put up a television ad that basically stole from the QAnon playbook. It was this very dark conspiratorial ad that um, implied that I was personally connected to sex trafficking because as you mentioned, I used to work for Human Rights Watch, a human rights group, which at one point years ago took a position against a very draconian crime bill that um, added big categories of people to um, the, 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 uh, the sex offender registry in our country. And so they put all these things together to suggest that somehow I was in favor of sex offenders. Um, and so this ad is running in my district. In Congress, I'm leading an effort to condemn QAnon. Uh, and unsurprisingly, QAnon itself notices these things. And I become the subject of a Q drop. Um, uh, as you all may know, there, there's no leader of QAnon, but there is this, this mythical Q persona, um, the person that Q followers are supposed to believe is um, trying to expose this this ridiculous conspiracy. And the Q persona posts things on the internet uh, every once in a while and posted it about me basically saying, look, the guy who is leading the charge against us in the Congress is himself part of this um, dark conspiracy of child sex trafficking. And on that day, I got a whole bunch of death threats from Q supporters around the country. So that's basically my piece of the story. Um, to your question about, about January 6th, yes, absolutely. And I think it's important to understand a QAnon, there's a particular conspiracy theory, a specific accusation that is at the heart of the QAnon movement, but QAnon is much more than just that theory about Democrats and George Soros and whatever trafficking children with Donald Trump trying to stop them. QAnon is, it, it operates, it's sort of like a drug that people take that immunizes them against reality across the board. Um, what QAnon teaches people is don't trust any objective source of information. Quote, do your own research, delve into all the conspiracy theories that exist online, and you can become the hero of the story. You, you know, a, a, a house, you know, a, a, a mom in, in Florida, a, an unemployed person in South Dakota, um, anybody in America, you can become the hero in exposing whatever conspiracy theory that you come to believe in. And, and, and that's why this has become so very dangerous. Um, QAnon does not say that you should use violence, but QAnon is like that precursor drug. Reject all objective authority, objective sources of information, believe the wild, the most wild and crazy conspiracy theories. And once that sucks you in, you become very susceptible to the appeals of others who say, well, now that you believe this stuff, you got to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And we're going to give you a way to do something about it. And that's what January 6th was. Yeah. Yeah. And Ali, maybe I think Congressman, you you teed that up perfectly for us to help pull back a little bit. You know, we we understand, and it was 
front page news when we were reading about Wayfair and the, the calls that it drove to the National Human Trafficking Hotline and uh, how it motivated people to act in a violent way on January 6th. Um, Ali, you've worked on sensitive uh, counterterrorism operations and in the intelligence community for many, many years. What do we need to learn from what we saw with QAnon last year? Um, and where are we today? Are we still dealing with, you know, kind of the, the Q drops? Are we still dealing with threats to uh, federal legislatures, to the anti-human trafficking community? What do you see when you pull back? Well, thank you. And I think uh, Catherine and uh, Congressman Milanowski did a great job in setting the stage of uh, what QAnon is all about and how they operate. And for a long time, we have been studying uh, what you would label the disinformation terrorism nexus. Uh, first, we did it with the jihadis and uh, uh, with other kind of uh, national security threats. And today it's uh, conspiracy driven violent extremism that QAnon is kind of like putting out here in the United States. We continue to try to study it from, you know, to, to, to qualify it and quantify it. What our research into QAnon is specific, uh, specific uh, as, the phenomenon of QAnon specifically has shown is that the movement has the potential to serve as a force multiplier uh, in the broader domestic violent extremist context, but also um, as a significant national security threat to the United States. Uh, I think there are four few insights into QAnon I would like to share with you to highlight uh, the potential threat, the conspiracy driven movement um, you know, including QAnon poses to the United, it's the United States security, um, national security. Uh, first, I think we need to keep in mind that QAnon is not a purely an online phenomenon and the QAnon conspiracy has been weaponized to commit acts of violence. Um, you know, for example, if you look at the data from the profiles of individual radicalizations in the United States, almost half of all the individuals who, are, who have engaged in ideologically motivated crimes in the name of QAnon have conducted violent offensives, including homicides, including assaults, criminal threats. So those guys are criminal in nature usually. And tragically, as of uh, February, um, I think we have more than three people already have lost their lives to QAnon inspired attacks. So. Uh, if you look at uh, the January 6th insurrection, for example, and that's something uh, Catherine mentioned earlier, um, we have a um, few dozen people who uh, already indicted and are affiliated with the QAnon conspiracy theories. So I think uh, from United States perspective, even the FBI, the ODNI, they made it very clear now that conspiracy theories promoting violence, groups like QAnon, um, you know, are a national security threat, a severe national security threat. And I think uh, Christopher Wray of the FBI just said that um, last week in his testimony in Congress. The second one is the, radical, uh, the radicalization playbook that QAnon is using is very similar to other extremist playbooks that we've seen. Um, all the way from the jihadis, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. And now we see it, QAnon, using conspiracies, you know, Al-Qaeda, there is a war against Islam, QAnon talks about 
you know, alleged, um, you know, um, the deep state. Uh, they talk about um, how um, the West and the United States uh, put uh, puppet regimes in the Middle East. Here they're talking about how the election has been stolen. So there's a lot of similarities on how they promote uh, conspiracy theories in order to become more relevant and take advantage of the societal and political divisions uh, that we have in the country. And definitely, um, you know, we've seen that in how they steal hashtags, exactly like ISIS used to do. Remember in the World Cup in 2014, uh, ISIS stole the hashtag World Cup 2014 in order to promote messages and send messages to uh, uh, Muslims in the West. And today we see QAnon, for example, stealing the hashtag Save the Children and stop the steal in order to do exactly the same thing. The third element is we cannot underestimate the role of social media, especially social media algorithm. And, and these are the, the things that's allowing groups like QAnon, allowing these in conspiracies to, to, uh, to uh, more reach people around the world and definitely in the United States, but not only in the United States, also um, around the world. And uh, fourth, uh, I think we need to keep in mind that QAnon is not purely a domestic threat anymore. Uh, we just issued a report about quantifying Q, basically. And, uh, you know, we can show that, um, you know, between uh, 2020 and the first two a month of 2021, almost 20% of all QAnon posts on Facebook, for example, for example, originated from administrators overseas, especially from China and Russia. So there is increasingly a blaring line between a domestic, what's domestic and what's foreign. And we see foreign actors and maybe foreign governments taking advantage of this in, in, in order to create further divide, further mistrust uh, in order to fight you know, there's a cognitive opening here that we can use to divide Americans and let's take advantage of it and let's use it. And we've seen that, you know, all the way back in 2016 and we continue to see it. And unfortunately, human rights organizations, especially organizations that's working like Polaris, for example, in the field of, um, you know, saving the children really and, 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 and targeting uh, people who are involved in human trafficking are basically the subject because their goal is, to destroy the trust that exists between the population and between the institution. When you destroy that trust, you will destroy the social contract that put the government together, put the society together. And this is what organizations like QAnon aim to do. And this is the people who amplify their message, um, you know, taking advantage of the current algorithm of social media. That's exactly what they are trying to do. And unfortunately, now we're dealing with this you know, the QAnon thing as part of the nexus between uh, national security and between disinformation. Uh, Ali, your point about and, and some news breaking here, the link that your research is uncovering between uh, this theory in particular and foreign parties and potentially foreign governments. Uh, how does that change things? Are you more worried than you were on, say, January 5th? Uh, less worried, worried in a different way? I think it's kind of um, nothing in you, basically. You know, we were not shocked because we have been seeing foreign governments and foreign entities and foreign actors trying to intervene in our 
uh, you know, political process. And for people like the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians to take advantage of something that's already happening, to take that match and throw it on, on, uh, on in a very dry forest, uh, it's very appealing to them to do so. So we're not shocked about that. Uh, but I think it, it highlights the need that um, the Biden administration, that Congress, that the US government, we need to find a bipartisan approach to tackle this issue. That's number one. And number two, we need to put some kind of an entity that deal with this disinformation, not only focusing on the domestic versus focusing on the international, they need to focus on both because now, honestly, at this point, we don't know what's domestic and what's international. Even with domestic terrorism, for example, with the rise of anti-Semitic groups, the right of white supremacy organizations. I mean, we see the international link for these groups, groups like Autumn Waffen, groups like The Base, groups like Rise Up, uh, Above Movement with other organizations overseas. And we, we, we talked in the Safan Center about this uh, more than two years ago. And uh, last week, the FBI director acknowledged that transnational threats and transnational linkages in Canada already started to designate many of these domestic groups as international terrorist organizations. So we need to look into QAnon, not as a domestic phenomenon. We need to look into QAnon also as an international phenomenon. And this is extremely important legally because the moment we start doing that, then we have a lot of tools that is not available for us to tackle it from a domestic perspective, but we can utilize these tools to tackle the disinformation when it comes from international uh, you know, sources. So we need to look into this as such and the administration and Congress need to, to legislate in tackling that disinformation terrorism nexus uh, in, in a way that deals with the threat as it is, not as we think it is. Yeah. Congressman, what do you think, uh, what's your sense of whether there'll be legislative activity to the extent Ali is suggesting this Congress prospects? Yeah, the, I think there's, there's a lot of interest and a lot we need to do. We have to be careful about it. Uh, I'm not sure if, um, I, I, I would not expect QAnon its, itself to be designated as a terrorist organization because it really isn't an organization. Ali is right that doing so would give us tremendous uh, law enforcement powers that don't currently exist, but, but precisely because that is such a powerful tool, it has to be used judiciously. Look, I'm, I'm particularly focused on the role that social media plays in enabling this. And, and let, me, let me back up a little bit in, in describing why that's important. Um, there's nothing new about um, cults promoting conspiracy theories. Um, the, the QAnon, the central conspiracy theory is basically a rehash of one of the oldest conspiracy theories we know. The, the blood libel, the anti-Semitic blood libel, which also basically suggested that there is a powerful group of people inside government that is trafficking, that is stealing our children and drinking their blood. That's been around for hundreds of years. Um, we've had cults in America forever, um, but they have never attracted millions of followers. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the distinction between QAnon and one of the most famous pre-social media era cults, the, the Jim Jones um, movement, the People's Temple, you remember, um, which led to a mass suicide 
of, of followers drinking literally Kool-Aid that was spiked with, with poison. Um, again, that was a, a cult that attracted thousands of people and it was one of the most successful cults in American history. It took years for Jim Jones to build his following through a physical church to which he attracted his adherents. And in the end, in order to get his people to believe that, that the world required them to take their own lives, he had to move them all to a jungle compound in South America to isolate them from all other forms of information. Well, Facebook and other social media companies are now doing that for these kinds of cults. What they do is they, they know everything about us and they know exactly who in the world is susceptible to the types of conspiracy theories that QAnon promotes. And if it believes you are susceptible to that, not only will it feed you more and more and more of the conspiracy theory, but it'll do so to the exclusion of all other forms of information. In effect, Facebook is creating isolated jungle compounds in every single town in the United States, virtual compounds where people are fed only this kind of nonsense day after day after day until it becomes their only reality. Without that, there's no way that January 6th happens or that QAnon becomes a national phenomenon that overwhelms human trafficking hotlines. And so this is where, you know, Ali mentioned the algorithms because that's the, that's the software program that determines what we all see on social media and that the, the, you know, these, these big platforms have designed their algorithms to create this phenomenon where we're just getting content that reinforces our pre-existing biases and, and predilections. So I, I have legislation, um, which we will move this year in the house, I'm fairly confident, um, that will for the first time hold the big social media platforms accountable, legally accountable, if their algorithms, if the way in which they recommend content to us can be linked to a terrorist act um, or violent hate crimes of the sort that uh, we have seen associated with, uh, with QAnon in the past couple of years in the United States. I spent some time in Guyana and unfortunately, when you tell people you're traveling to Guyana, that Jonestown is still what they think, what they think of in such a, a beautiful country with wonderful people. Um, and glad to hear about the legislation that, that you're moving forward. Uh, Catherine, related question to you, picking up on the, the social media angle. I think we've seen the role that social media has played in, in recruitment for human, human trafficking in the past or recruiting victims. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, are you still seeing that? Are you still seeing the social media impact on the hotline? Um, what are you seeing today? Yeah, thanks, Kristen. I mean, I think that there's a, a couple of things to, to keep in mind here. Um, I really appreciate the way that Ali and Congressman Malinowski are framing out um, the role that trafficking plays in the larger conversations around misinformation, right? And I also think that there is an essential role that civil society has to play in the ecosystem of response. So it's not only to go after social media companies, although definitely there are things that need to be done in order to change those algorithms, um, but there's also an opportunity for us to actually get true information in front of people as they're curious. 
the, the data that we have that we've been able to see is that um, is trafficking is a highly believable and a highly animating narrative out there in the world, right? It's about the fact that children who you love, who are the future, who are the, the, the pillars of your, of your family are potentially being threatened. And um, it makes it so that women in particular are highly susceptible to the narratives that are out there about um, false information about trafficking. So for us as an anti-trafficking organization, we see a real role to play in not only making sure that social media companies are thinking about the algorithms, but also how are they policing uh, these, these misinformation, this, this conspiracy information, right? Um, if you ban a hashtag altogether, it stops us from being able to also get real information out into the world. Um, if you just take down information without putting up the truth, it also makes it impossible for us to get our own messages out there about what is actually happening. Um, and so for us, we, you know, we want to make sure that there is nuance in the way that social media companies are thinking about these issues. Um, and we also really want to make sure that people understand that just because QAnon has been deplatformed does not mean that this threat goes away. Trafficking is shown over and over and over again, and not just in the United States, but also around the world as an animating narrative. And so if it's not QAnon, it's some other organization, it's a white supremacist group. Um, we've seen even on Telegram that white supremacist groups are talking about how you uh, recruit disaffected QAnon followers by using trafficking narratives. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a broader conversation that has to happen. Yeah. Uh... I guess, question over to you, Ali, from Catherine's point. We know that QAnon in this disparate group of believers is not going away. Um, and there will be another QAnon that comes behind it as well. So we talked a little bit about the role that social media companies can play in being a force for good um, uh, on this issue. But from your perspective, uh, what do we need to be doing now? What more can we be doing now to combat disinformation and try and prevent additional theories like this from taking hold in the future? Yeah, I, I totally agree with what Catherine said and with uh, what um, um, Representative Lenowski mentioned. And this is extremely important that goes beyond uh, just specifically QAnon and uh, beyond uh, any specific conspiracy theories that we see today, because as long as we have all these incubating factors that's feeding into this, we're gonna continue to see this coming in different shapes and different names in different looks. Uh, so we need to deal with the roots of the problem. We need to deal with the disease, not with the symptoms of the disease, because it's a very dangerous disease at this point. And radicalization, because of groups like Ikunan, because of conspiracies like, you know, you know saving the children from, you know, um, that we see that Ikunan is, is hijacking. Uh, radicalization um, have condensed from approximately 18 months to only seven months. And that's due to the ability of extremists like Ikunan um, to um, push people more towards violent extremist organizations and networks. Um, for example, um, you know, 60, more than 66% of Ikunan adherents moved from radicalization to mobilization for an ideologically motivated crime in less than a year. 
So we need to, this is very dangerous and it's only getting worse. And one of the things that we need to do at this point is we need to start about a, a comprehensive solution. And uh, the comprehensive solution for this is going to be, um, you know, a society, you know, approach way in dealing with this. Not only social media, not only government, not only, uh, uh, you know, we need to include civil civil society. We need to include uh, organizations uh, who are active in this field. Definitely, Congress has a role to play. The administration has a lot to play, and um, um, in we need to start thinking at the internet. You know, taking into account the international dimension of this threat because the international dimension is also an extremely important dimension where foreign actors and maybe even adversaries of the United States are trying to utilize this um, you know, against our people and against our government and, 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 and against the United States uh, overall national security interests. So it has to be a comprehensive approach. And, um, and, I, and, and unfortunately, I feel that we are a little bit behind the eight ball in dealing with that, with that threat and dealing with the different dimension and components of this threat that basically uh, is, is, is promoting itself because of the crisis, because of the deep uh, partisan uh, crisis because of the the distrust that exists and had, has been you know existing and evolving for decades between the people and between the government and the different institutions and now people are taking advantage of this so we need to handle you know find a bipartisan approach like Tom is doing in Congress um, target that in a bipartisan way uh, focus on the crisis as it exists and trying to limit it, uh, trying to hold social media uh, entities accountable, especially for, al for their algorithm, because their algorithm is based on creating conflicts. That's their ratings. That's how they make money. And, and also at the same time, trying to invest in, in education and in social programs in helping non-government organizations uh, and uh, you know, anti-trafficking groups in promoting their message in order to target the conspiracy that exists. So it is a whole society approach. Yeah, the comprehensive uh, approach makes a whole lot of sense to me. And, and Congressman, picking up on that idea of a comprehensive solution, I know you've talked about some legislation that you're putting forward. Do you have any recommendations or um, other pieces of information that you would share, particularly as it relates to local candidates? My understanding um, is that we are we're not only seeing uh, federal uh, federal elected leaders that may have some ties to, to QAnon or, or endorse the belief, but we're seeing it at the, the state and local level as well. So anything you can share for, for state legislatures or at the local level that could be helpful in trying to be part of that comprehensive solution? Yeah, well, we have uh, at least a couple of people who have messed around with QAnon in the U.S. Congress right now. Uh, uh, I think we've we've succeeded in in stigmatizing the movement enough that they don't admit it. Right, Marjorie Taylor Greene will not stand up now and say I I'm I'm a follower of Q, but you know she she rode that tiger all the way to the U.S. Congress. And yes, there are all kinds of mini Marjories all over the country sprouting up trying to. Uh, to win based on whipping up these kinds of fears. 
And, you know, look, we've got, we've still got a party system in this country, right? If, if, if our major parties, including the one that has been partly taken in by this nonsense, absolutely clearly says we will not tolerate anybody running on our party platform who has anything to do with the QAnon conspiracy theory. We will deny them financing. We will, uh, we will condemn them. We will shun them. Then it'll stop. It's a question of leadership. And, uh, and we will in particular need Republican leaders in this country to clearly consistently um, say that they will not tolerate anything to do with QAnon in their party. Some of them have intermittently, and I'm always happy to see that happen, but it has to be uh, more consistent. Um, and then you got to do all the stuff that Ali's talking about. You know, that's, that's you know, for people who've already been radicalized. This is where we will need stronger law enforcement efforts around the country. We need to use the laws we have on our books creatively um, to, to uh, prosecute uh, conspiracy on the part of QAnon and other extremist group followers. We need international intelligence sharing um, to make sure that there's not money flowing um, across uh, international borders that uh, the, the radicalized adherents aren't traveling back and forth from the US to Europe to, uh, to further their schemes. And then finally, I keep coming back to social media. Um, and, and here, Catherine is absolutely right that it's not enough for Facebook and these big companies just to take down content. Uh, that's, that's putting out fires. The problem is that their product itself is flammable. They, they are, it's the first time in, in, in human history that we have a global system for disseminating news and information that is fundamentally designed to spread radicalizing misinformation. Because as Ali said, the way they make money is to feed us content that triggers those emotions that keep us glued to our screen. And those are generally the basest, most negative emotions, fear and hatred. That's what works to keep people addicted to their social media platform. And so these, these networks are literally designed to give us more and more and more of that and less and less and less content that could lead us away from radicalization. And if that doesn't change, then if we allow this machine of radicalization to just continue to churn this stuff out, then it doesn't matter if we're taking the content down at the end of the process after people have been killed, because new versions of it will continue to sprout up. Yeah. So Catherine, last question over to you. I, I promised that I would wrap us up on time. We're focused on solutions now and, and how we can be a bit preventative as well. I think we've heard from the Congressman and Ali about the importance of engagement of our social media companies, about legislative change, about strong principled leadership from our political and party leaders that can have uh, impact down ticket as well. Um, share with me a little bit about the perspective from civil society. How can civil, so civil society be part of the solution? You know, I, I think listening to Congressman Malinowski, one of the things that always jumps out at me about human trafficking is that it, it still remains one of the most bipartisan issues in Congress. And I think that there is kind of a full circle opportunity here to be thinking about how are there social justice issues that actually shore up those 
fault lines that Ali was talking about? How do we actually start to get at the root cause issues around poverty, around um, inequity, uh, around our economic structures that are actually leading to a lot of the disaffectedness that is uh, uh, an on-ramp to being um, to, to being radicalized. And so I think that there is a, a unique role that civil society plays, not only in potentially helping to solve some of the societal issues. Um, I would also say that, you know, I want to feature the, the fact that uh, Polaris actually has a really, really um, wonderful partnership with the Supan Group. And what we have built is a predictive, um, forward-looking, offensive way of starting to look at how uh, conspiracy theories show up on the National Human Trafficking Hotline and how Polaris can then get out in front of those conspiracy theories and make sure that people understand what the truth is. And while it's only one, one you know, part of a much, much larger uh, conversation that needs to be there, I think that there is um, you know, one version of thinking about civil society as the victim and another version of thinking about civil society as the offensive partner in order to be able to do this in a way that is um, real time that allows us to actually start to morph and understand much better um, how conspiracies are taking hold and in the ways in which uh, social media companies and others can be starting to adapt and, and, and really change the way that they're working. And then the very last thing that I would add, um, and this is perhaps more of a shameless plug for those of us who are on, on some of the, the sense of, of, of being on the front line of this, is that um, organizations that are, are nonprofits really need support on the cybersecurity front. We need security funding, we need physical security funding, cybersecurity funding, and these are not things that um, federal agencies largely fund, right? But we, we, we don't have the ability to push back unless we have the ability to stay safe first. And I think that that is a, a key piece that uh, we could all be working on together. Yep. Amen to that. And I, I love the idea that we could use, um, you know, after human trafficking was used as the on-ramp in some ways to radicalization and, and, and hate, can we use it as the off-ramp and an opportunity to start um, pushing forward the narrative around things, the root causes that we talk about all the time, inequality and poverty and disenfranchisement and, and migration. So I, I love that optimistic ending for today. Um, I want to just thank each, each of you, Congressman Malinowski, Ali, and Catherine. This was a really wonderful conversation, not nearly as depressing as I, I thought it would, was going to be. So um, I'm hopeful that there's change on the horizon for 2021. And thank you again for being here. Kristen, if I can just say one thing, um, we are very honored with the partnership with Polaris. And I can tell you, uh, the anti-trafficking uh, movement uh, really upsets a group like QAnon. And I think, uh, as Catherine said, um, more people need to stand up and support organizations like Polaris because they are doing phenomenal job that's really upsetting the bad actors. So, Well, Ali, you're going to have many more anti-human trafficking organizations ringing you up at, at, after Catherine's plugs. <laughs> so get ready for, for us all we're, to be we're calling. We're very you. honored with uh, the partnership <laughs> with Polaris. Well, um, we're so glad that you're able to do that and be and be with us today. So thank you all. Take care.